Uh, this morning we are starting Romans chapter 13, and we're talking about being, as Christians, citizens of two countries, of uh, citizens of heaven, but also citizens of the United States. Although there are Christians around the world who are citizens of, of all different countries, of all different kinds. But to talk a little bit about what the Scripture says is our relationship, and that's been a question quite a bit over the last number of years, of the relationship between the church and, and the state, of, of Christians and uh, the government. So let us hear what God has to say in Romans chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 to 7. Hear then the Word of God, who says that every person should be subject to the governing authorities, because there is no authority except from God, and those that exist then have been instituted by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to the one whom taxes are due, revenue to the one who revenue is due, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to you, to worship you, to know you, to love you. We've come to sit at your feet and to hear from you. We long for your word to speak into our lives with power and truth to shape and change us, that we may be more like Jesus and more as you desire us to be. So make our hearts soft, that we may receive your word in humility, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We see right off the bat that Christians are to be subject to the government to be subject to the government. But there's a lot of confusion about this. There's a little bit of uh, proper, I think, questioning in terms of the relationship and that kind of thing between church and state and Christians and the government. But there's, some is legitimate and some isn't. You can go on Amazon right now and if you, uh, if you type in, you know, bumper sticker, uh, question authority. There, there'll be a whole bunch of options to come up. You can still get your question authority bumper sticker. Several of them are for sale by anarchist organizations. So they're, you know, children, sons of liberty, where, you know, of anarchy, and you can, get your, you can get your question authority bumper sticker. Questioning authority can be a good thing. I think that we should all be thinking and critical. I think there's a place for the church to speak prophetically into the life of a nation, but it's true in the church and in the community and in civil government that we should not blindly follow, but that we should be thinking, that we should question, that we should have thoughtful uh, engagement with all of these things. But the authority structures that we're questioning 
according to the scripture, are God-given. And he is in the whole, the whole issue of authority structures here is in, the, is in the context, you'll see, of good and evil. That they exist because in the world there's both good and evil. And so God has sovereignly ordained for our good. In verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authority. Because there is no authority except from God. And those that exist and have been instituted by God, that God is at work. And he, so the passage begins with this unequivocal and indisputable call for all people, when it says there, let every person, the word there is, is soul, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Every human being, every person should be subject, without exception, he says. And so he's talking to every soul, but especially then to Christians. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christian people. And so it's a word to us. And he tells us the word to be in subjection. Now I'm going to say right now, because we're going to touch on some of the limits in the end, that this is not without exception. You know, that there, that there are some limits on this. And we need to, in every age, we're wrestling with those limits. But this is where, he, where we start. We wrestle with those limits underneath this governing truth, so to speak, that God is at work in the world and He has established authority structures. But the statement here is so strong, it almost could not be stronger. Every soul subject to the governing authorities, they exist because God instituted them. So we need to take it seriously and to think through what it looks like then to be citizens of two kingdoms, citizens of heaven and yet citizens of an earthly country, whatever that country may be. And the word that's used here when it says that we're to be subject to governing authorities, it's a Greek word that is used for legitimate delegated authorities. It's not a raw word for power. You know, for those who happen to have the power at the moment, somebody might have a gun on you, and in a sense, they have power of authority over you in some sense. But he's not talking about raw power. He's talking about delegated, proper authorities that have been established. Christians are called then to be law-abiding citizens. So we should strive to be the best citizens. The best citizens of any country in which you find yourself living. If you live in China, you should strive to be a good citizen. If you live in Kenya, wherever you find yourself living, as we live in America, we should be the best citizens because the scripture says that whatever you do, you should do it heartily for the Lord. That whatever we do, we should do it with our whole heart, from the heart. Honest sense of desiring to do it well, to be what we're called to be. Here, here is, in a sense, the, the foundation of all Protestant work ethic, whatever you do, work from the heart heartily for the Lord and not for men. If you're a student, you should be the best student. If you're young people, if you're a student right now, you should be the best ones. Respecting your teachers and respecting the time and, and respecting the, the schedule and doing our work. Why? Because whatever we do, we should work heartily is for the Lord, not for man. You don't do it for the teacher. You don't do it for the school. You don't do it for whatever we Submit to those authority structures because we submit to God and God establishes authorities. 
And whatever we do, if we're a student, we should be the best student. In the workplace, you should be the most conscientious, hardworking, and honest employee in the place. Why? Because you don't work for the company, per se, or for your uh, senior, your employer, but you work for God. And so you honor the agreement that has been made. You know what it means that you work for what they pay you. We should be the most conscientious and hardworking. Whatever we're doing in life, if we're doing our homework, if we're mowing the lawn, this is that work ethic that says we don't do it for people, we don't do it for our neighbors, we don't do it because we've been told to do it. We live for the honor of Christ in whatever we do, and he says we bring this to our citizenship. When it comes to being a citizen, it's not surprising we're called to be the best citizens that a country could have and to take our responsibilities seriously and that we should then respect and submit to the governing authorities as far as it's proper. To respect and to submit to what we're going to call the rule of law. So that one of the things that we see in this is that God establishes, he has authority, he establishes the rule of law. It's something that is God-given, God-desiring. It's the way he has structured the world, so to speak. And so we know it's not surprising down in verse 5 that we're called to obey again. In verse 6, we're called to pay taxes. In verse 7, we're called to give respect and to give honor. We're told elsewhere we're even to pray for our leaders in 1 Timothy 2. He says, I urge you, I urge you, I encourage you very strongly that supplications and prayers and intercessions, all kinds of interceding with God and thanksgiving be made for all the people, but for kings and for those who are in high positions. And you remember, he's writing this in the Roman Empire to the Roman, the church in Rome, saying, pray for your leaders. Includes the American president. You know, Christians should be great Americans. Why? Because America is great? No. Because God is great. I'm not saying America is not great. I do personally think it is. But this is true even if you live in Kenya, Ukraine, England, Rome, wherever you live. We should be great citizens. Because we serve not man but God. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, we read this in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. At the time of this writing, it's probably Nero. Maybe one before him, but either way. It's before the persecutions, but still, he says, whether to the emperor as supreme or to the governors like Pilate, as sent by him, by God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Right? It's an issue of good and evil. And government stands in the world as an institution of God, part of his common grace to restrain evil and to promote what is good. For this is the will of God. Fear God and honor the emperor. Puts these two together. Fear God and honor the emperor. Why? Because God delegates authority to the state. He delegates authority to the state. In verse 1, he goes on to say, There is no authority except from God. And those that exist, if it exists, it's been instituted by God. Now, there are two important things in that one 
sentence and that one thought, and we shouldn't miss that all authority belongs to God, right? And Jesus says to Pilate, you know, that, that you would have no power over me, except that God gave it to you, right? That, that he recognizes that all authority belongs to God. He is the ultimate authority in the universe, that he is Lord over all things, that all earthly authority, whatever authority that there is, legitimate authority in the world, derives from him, is delegated from him. In theological terms, what we're saying is God is sovereign. He's Lord over all. He's the king over all kings. He's the Lord over all other lords. And they all owe their obedience to him, and that comes out in this text. They're his servants. They have a sacred duty, a sacred calling. God is sovereign. We see in Daniel 2.21, in a, in, a, in a number of places, I grabbed a nice short one for us, simply where it says that he, the Lord God, removes kings and he establishes kings. That's part of his sovereignty, that's part of his lordship. In other places it says that, that, that he raises up princes and he plants them in place and then he blows, and like the wind, he says he blows them away. He establishes and he takes down. He is the Lord over all lords, and if they rule, they rule by his sovereign will. So biblically and theologically, these existing structures are put in place by God. He ordains these powers. Biblically and theologically, we tend to recognize three spheres. I think that it is helpful, and I think it is true biblically, that God has established authority in, in three central places, and they're, and they're in growing circles. And the first is in the family, and the second is in the church, and the third is in the state. That he has established these spheres of authority. Each one has their own. And so in the family, there is a parental authority. This is why the fourth, fourth commandment says that children should obey their parents. And, that, and, and there's a promise given in that. But, but it's one of the ten commandments that children should obey their parents. Why? Because God has delegated them authority. There are times that I would say to my children when I'm telling them no to something, I try to say yes to a lot so that my no means something. When I say no, I would tell them you know, look, God has given me a job to do, and I'm doing the best I can. But I really believe it is the job God gave me to do, right? And I need you to then, you know, to, to hear me that I love you, and even when I say no, right? But there is this authority that is vested in the parent. It's a, it's a natural right in the sense that you bore these children. There's a, there's a, there's a sense of a natural right, uh, but also a God-given right, uh, an authority in the home. And so parents, uh, children, you should obey your parents. You should seek to honor and to respect them because that's the way God set it up. The state, we say in the church, we want to assist parents in their Christian nurture. It's one of the vows we take at baptism. We say that we want to assist these parents in the Christian nurture of their children. And we provide Sunday school and the, and the programs that we did and VBSs, and we provide these things to assist parents in the godly education and raising of their children. But even in all of that, we respect and defer to the parents, right? They always are going to have the final authority as you're involved in our youth program or involved in all these things. We want to come alongside the family, but always to respect parental authority in the lives of their children. It would be nice if the state would do the same. To defer to parents in the moral and spiritual training of their children as both a natural and God-given right. 
And right now there are many parents who are properly resisting the authority of the state because of their overreach in seeking to indoctrinate our children in ways that are contrary to our own conscience. There are some in government who follow ungodly philosophies. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I believe in the late 18th century, so also overlaps with Marxism and some of the teaching where they believe that government takes all authority to itself. Right? That all the authority lies in the government and it overrides both family and church in terms of what they're allowed to do. And the government takes all that authority that God has put in separate spheres. And so Paul Johnson in his book, Intellectuals, he says this, the axis of Rousseau's ideas was that the citizen of a country was a child and the state is the parent. And so he insists that the government should have complete charge over the upbringing of all children. The state raises your children. Right? That is, that is the thinking. And you hear it. I've heard politicians actually say that, that you should give us your children, that we have the right to train your children. But I don't believe that that is biblical. It is anti what God has established where he has given the proper responsibility and authority into the family. But God has also vested authority in the church, spiritual and ecclesial and declarative. There's a spiritual authority that does abide in the church. It's given to the elders and it's exercised through church discipline. If you join our church, we always walk through church discipline. There's a series of sermons Online, there's four of them, I think, that walk through the Scripture and how a church should exercise spiritual authority in calling people to follow Jesus as part of the church. And when they're not following Jesus, you know, drawing lines of inside and outside for those who are following Christ and who are not following Christ. It protects the church and it protects people and it calls people to repentance. But there is an authority vested in the elders through church discipline. But there's also an authority vested in the state and in the government, and they do have proper authority to defend and to reinforce what is good and to hinder and to punish what is evil. And all governments at some level do that to some degree, right? And, then, and there is a sense of law and order in most lands, and wherever government falls down, anarchy can last for a little while, but something will take its place. Some authority structure, some power. So in verse 2, our obligation to submit to this authority is so strong, he says that to resist it, verse 2, therefore whoever resists the authorities, rebels against the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And for those who resist, they will incur judgment. And when they say they will incur judgment, the context seems to be that the judgment is the proper exercise of legitimate power to punish. If, if children resist their parents, they are vested with a certain power, you might get grounded. You're, you're not going to get dessert tonight, right? There's going to be, or whatever there is, there's a, there's, I'll leave it, you know, that's another conversation for another day. But you have authority for that purpose, as does the church in the exercise of discipline in church membership, but as does the state have a legitimate use of force, to empower and to 
Again, promote good and to hinder evil and to punish what is wrong. It, it hints also, it hints at God's ultimate justice. But in the text, it really seems to point to the legitimate justice. He goes on to talk about the power of the sword. And so this state is God's servant for our good. And we would say all three of these are, that the state and the church and the family and parental authority are all given for our good, according to the text. And so in verses 3 and 4, he makes it clear, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, right? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority, whether in your house or in your church or in your state? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword, the the proper use of force, in vain. But rather, he is the servant of God and the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In the ideal world, and I do believe what we're given here is an ideal, the ideal of what God desires and establishes, and I think that we should all strive for and hope for and work for, which is that the state will punish those who do wrong and not those who do right, right? And that it will reward those who do right and not punish them But it rewards the rule of law. It it rewards proper functioning in the life of the state of those who are part of it. And the good would not need to fear the state. Only lawbreakers of legitimate laws. If you're law-abiding, you can live in peace and safety. And this is, this is the desire, this is God's design, this is the, something that we live under then. R.C. Sproul says the first task of government then is to protect the people from evil and to preserve and to maintain life. And in its best exercise, that's what it does. And even in America, in our worst moments, it's doing that to a large degree. And that's good. And that is godly. So... Verse 4, the state is God's servant for our good, and he's given the power of the sword to carry out God's wrath. In other words, that the rule of law requires enforcement. And so the structures of enforcement that are in place are proper and legitimate. The state is given the power of the sword to carry out God's wrath against evil and what is wrong. Because the the rule of law requires enforcement. And so... It's a proper exercise. It's not in vain that they have the sword. The sword is given by God properly to be exercised in the use of force to enforce the rule of law in proper function. God's justice is enforced. And so through the state, there's the proper, proper place for armed police, state prosecutors, judges, a penal system, These are all proper exercises of authority for justice and for the carrying forward of God's purpose. And God establishes the rule of law in this way in these structures and they're intended for our good. Now, it's to state the obvious, not all human authority then is perfect. 
Because as soon as you step back, and that's what I say is we look for an ideal and we look at our families and we look at the families around us and we see, we see that it doesn't always go the way that it's supposed to go. It's not, the human authority is not perfect, not now, but never, not in Rome in those days, not here, not anywhere, not just not in America. There are a lot of people who are very unhappy with the way it's going in America, but if you look around the world, you've got problems everywhere because you're dealing with human institutions. There are bad parents in dysfunctional churches and corrupt states. There were in Paul's day. It's not that they were perfect then and we've degraded. He states these things in full knowledge that there is brokenness and sin. Human structures are comprised of sinners, unbelievers in our state governments. But it doesn't change the truth that God is conveying here. That that government is is a... act of his common grace that extends beyond the church. It's not just Christians that should have government. It's like marriage. It's not just Christians who should get married. It's a creation ordinance. It is a a common grace that he gives to the whole world. You know, the sun rises on the evil and the righteous. And God gives government to the evil and the righteous. And it is his his good gift. But they are composed of sinners. But it doesn't change the legitimacy And as Christians, we should be the first then to call out and to grieve over abuses of power. And we've seen a bunch of this. And and one of the roles of a Christian in the state where we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven is we're citizens also of a country that we see as misbehaving, where power is abused and there are misuses of power and things go in directions that they shouldn't go, that the state isn't punishing evil and promoting the good. And it is the prophetic role... As citizens, we vote, we get involved, and we do a lot of other things, but we also have a prophetic voice to be the first to call it out and say foul, right? That something is wrong. Part of the problem is that that sometimes we're not vocal enough in the places where the church should be vocal to say that something is wrong when it is clearly wrong, when there's a miscarriage of justice. We care about the truth. We believe that government and 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 the use of force is a sacred calling. And for that force to be used in ways that are unjust and that cause people suffering, right? We should care because we have an idea of, an ideal of the way that it should be. We should be the first to grieve and to call out abuses of power. And it's been our failure in history, going back whether it's to slavery and to the civil rights movement where the church was too silent for too long. And there are issues like that in our culture today where we should be speaking. We're overly politicized rather than utterly biblical. Where we should be speaking into it prophetically. But finally then, Christians in government, as we think about applications of this and what and thinking and applying this to some degree. I'm going to look at verses 5, 6, and 7 as the first three applications and then give you a couple of more. Paul applies it himself. In verse 5, he says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We're called to submit to the law and to care about the rule of law, not because we might be punished, not because we might get caught. You shouldn't steal, not because you might get caught. Right? You shouldn't rebel against the proper authorities because you might get caught, but he says because of conscience. In other words, you, you do what's right because it's right, 
It's not, the, it's not our fear of the authority or the, the, the ability for us to be punished, whether we're children and it's our parents, or whether we're members in a church, or whether we're citizens in a country. We should do what's right because it's right. Because of conscience. Robert Yarborough says that part of Christian integrity is civic responsibility. It's part of our Christian integrity. It, it's a matter of obedience to God, that we're good citizens. But we do not submit to authority out of the fear of man, but out of love and obedience to God. In verse 6, he tells us one application of this is that we need to pay taxes. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for these authorities are ministers of God, and there's a sense in which you tithe into the life of the church and you pay taxes into the state. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for these authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. They're doing a job that God has established, that God wants, that God ordains, that God intends for our good and for our safety. And because God has established it, we are called, as one of the applications, to pay our taxes. Jesus paid taxes. He said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Clearly, that was taxes. In Matthew 17, it says a tax collector came up and he went up to Peter and says, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter replied, yes. He does. Jesus paid taxes. We know the story of the coin in the fish's mouth where he used to pay taxes at one point. Just like Jesus walked on the water one time to cross the lake to catch up. But he usually took a boat. And I think that Jesus usually paid his taxes in the normal way. That here is this miraculous story. But I think underneath the story is that. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And I think he is saying legitimately Caesar's. Because he is the ruling authority. And we owe him. We owe the state that brings law and order. Perhaps imperfectly. And does justice. And it's instructive in in applying all of this that he uses taxes to illustrate submission to the government. That he uses taxes to call us into it as if perhaps it needed special mention or special attention. You know, take taxes, for instance. And it may in our day, a lot of us, nobody likes to pay taxes. But it's your God-given duty, (laughs) according to the Scripture. And so at some level, even as we tithe or pay taxes or give where we're called to give. We should do it from the heart, so to speak. It is right and good for me to pay taxes for the good that it does for us. Now, you can debate that all day long, but again, we're talking about the ideal in our obligation, not some of the realities that we wrestle with in a fallen world. But in verse 7, he gives us another application is that we owe more than taxes, right? In verse 7, he says, pay the tax to who it's owed. Pay to everyone what is owed. If it's taxes, taxes. Revenue, revenue. Respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. People in offices of authority command respect. The office does. They command respect. By whose command? God's command. And I hear people say, well, they haven't earned my respect. But God says if they're in a position of authority, they don't have to earn it. God has commanded you to give it. 
respect and honor to those who hold an office, whether it's a policeman who's pulled you over on the side of the road or the president who you didn't vote for. He says, give to all to their office, which is God-ordained and established to give the proper respect. That's for children to parents. Give the respect and the honor and the obedience that is due to their office. It applies in the life of the church. One of the vows that we just took was, will you submit to the government and discipline of the church? It's one of the vows. It's, it's, it's godly, it's right, it's, it's biblical. So the president is owed our respect and our honor due to his office, although I hear Christians today explicitly rejecting this. And, and to you, I would simply say, be careful. I mean, I, I'm going to get down in the weeds between you and your Lord, but we have to be careful. There, there's a lot that goes on in the world, and we get caught up in and become like the world. We're in the world, but we're not to be like it. And we've been given marching orders. We've, we've been given a standard. We've been called to a certain kind of life. It's tragic that there are public abuses of power. And I would just say here, even as we are to respect and to honor, I mean, I think of police officers, they command our respect because of their office. And they have a gun. You know, that doesn't do it for you, and that's one of the problems that we're having right now. They bear the sword, not in vain. And when people begin to disrespect that authority, it only creates problems. And it's sad, and it, this is where you need to hear both sides of it. It is sad that in our world, there are times where that authority is misused. It's where it's abused, where it goes wrong, where there are failures, where bad choices are made. People die. And there are those who are afraid of police. There are some who may have legitimate fear in their hearts of what may go down. And I think we need to respect and understand that. I want to stand on the other side and even say in that context, that still doesn't give us the right, and, and, and it even makes it dangerous to embolden us to begin to resist that authority. We see, I think, a rise in some of that behavior, and I think it only makes the situation worse. And they don't bear the sword in vain. So there is a respect that is due, that if we're pulled over, that we speak respectfully and comply respectfully, not because they've earned it, but because they have the office, and we're called to it. Let me just say that in the end here, anarchy and lawlessness are evil. They are anti-God. Because they are anti-His authority and His rule, ultimately, but in immediate sense in the world. It, it, the anarchy, lawlessness, lifts the restraints against evil that God has put in place. The world is much worse. Whenever you see authority and, and governing power and the enforcement of law taken away, you see chaos. You see human nature taken to its fullest. It is a gift to have restraints placed on the evil of our neighbors in our community. I'm not talking about your neighbors in particular. Don't envision the guy next door. In general, you know what I'm saying. There is the need for reform, though. We, while, again, we, and this is where I call us to say that there is an ideal here, but there's also a need for reform. There's a need for reform for our laws. People sometimes, you know, quote to me certain laws that are in place. I'm like, no. And they're like, yeah. And, and it needs to be reformed, and there are policing practices. And I think this is where, as Christians, we can speak out and just say, we need to respect and fund 
and support our police, but there also needs to be accountability and reform, right? We're Presbyterians, right? We're, we're one of the marks of the Reformation was semper reformanda. That is always reforming. Even the church must be always reforming. We tend to get concretized and drawn aside and all kinds of things that go on in the life of the church, and we need to be constantly reforming ourselves according to the Word of God to stay true. And this is true of every human institution. And we should be great supporters of all kinds of reform and accountability in the life of these authorities because they have so much power. And they do have power. God has given us the rule of law. Needless to say, serving in a public office at all levels is an honorable calling. It says here they're God's servants for the rule of law. And those who hold office and abuse it or are unfaithful and are corrupt in it will answer to God. It says they are his servants. And he's given them a sacred calling. And so for those who are in office, we would speak prophetically and say, be careful. Because you will answer to the ultimate authority for the authority you've used and abused and corrupted. Let me end just by saying the power of the government is not absolute. And you know this and I know this. Because there's no authority except from God. He's the Lord over all lords. And we don't just obey those sub-lords without taking into account the Lord who is over them all. John Piper says, our political allegiances, our political allegiances are to Jesus. No party, no nation, no ethnicity, no ideology has any ultimate claim on us. Our decisive constitution is the word of God and not any human document. We are citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven, and only secondly, Americans. And wherever the law and the command of God is at odds with God's word, where it's not at odds, wherever the law and the command is not at odds with God's word, we should obey it. And wherever that command and that law is at odds with God's word, then we should resist. We can either protest, and there are many opportunities for protest, or there are times when we just outright resist. Whenever the authorities permit sin, ultimately, we obey God and not man. We were just, the children memorized part of Psalm 139 where we're fearfully and wonderfully made. The fuller text of 139, 13, and 14 says, For you were formed, you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you from fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. And because we believe that, that God himself forms a child in the womb, that they are fearfully and wonderfully made by him, we believe that aborting children at any stage is wrong. Because God's word clearly teaches that he is Lord over the womb. That he is the one who knits children together, that he is the creator and the Lord of life. I've heard people say that I'm against abortion, but I support the right to choose, which makes no sense according to the word of God. It's like saying I'm against murder, but I'm for people's right to choose. And that is, it's incongruous, right? It is a capitulation to man's law, where man's law is against God's law. We go with God. But the opposite can happen. The law can forbid what God commands, preaching and the word of God. And we're finding that more and more. 
There are countries very close to ours and near to ours where people are being arrested for saying things from the pulpit that are contrary to the common cultural narrative. It was happening in Acts. It was happening in the early church. Apostles are pulled in and said, we, they were told, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Stop preaching Christ. Stop preaching his word. Stop preaching his morality. Stop, stop it. And Peter answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. I encourage you to watch a movie called A Hidden Life. A Hidden Life. A Hidden Life. Right? So you remember that. It's a long, slow movie, but it is very good. It's set in World War II, and it's an Austrian farmer with his family, and they follow him for a couple of hours between they started to conscript troops out of Austria. And part of that was you had to take a vow of obedience and allegiance to Hitler as part of whatever part you played, and he couldn't do it. It's a powerful movie. But there are Islamic countries. China forbids Christian training by parents. They believe the children belong to the state. In many countries there, there are secret churches. Bibles are smuggled in against the law because where God's law is against the law of the land, we follow his law. I know I've not answered a plethora of questions. Even as I finish this, I'm thinking, you know, when is it right to rebel? What are the limits of this? And where, where is government overreach exactly? Draw the lines here and there. But I would just say this. Before you wrestle with those lines, you need to sit in this text. For me, we can't even begin to answer where are the limits until our hearts are thoroughly obedient to the ideas in this text. And then we have a clear and full understanding of what God is doing in the world before we start to wrestle with it. Because to rebel, as he said, against whoever resists the authorities, resists what God is doing. And so we have to be very careful to make sure that we're, do, we're resisting because of what God is doing. And not because of our preferences or any other political or other ideological driving force. He commands every soul to be subject to the governing authorities because they've been instituted by God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that... You have so loved the world in its fallenness that you established government, that you have given us authorities in the home, in the church, in the state, that you have given them for our good. And I pray that you would make us wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we seek to be faithful to you and to your word in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.